Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. So here we are, as you can see on the sign above me, uh, the time frame for these last seven chapters is roughly 445 through 433. What's interesting about some of that is that Nehemiah is not in Jerusalem. So remember that Nehemiah was not moving to Jerusalem permanently. The king said, you can go, but you have to come back. You're useful to me. Um, I need you to come back. And so for a lot of this period, 445 through 433, it's kind of we skip over it um, because Nehemiah is not there. He's back in uh, Persia. Um, just to let you know, in this time period, so basically from 445 through 433, this is also we're starting to see some significant things happen in Greece. This is this is part of Greece beginning to ascend. We already know that Greece is, is beginning to push back against Babylon, or sorry, I mean Babylon now, Persia push back against Persia successfully, that, that they're, they're having more and more rebellions and skirmishes, and Greece is part of that. Um, Greece is, the, the other thing that's going on is Greece is built, Athens is building the Parthenon during this time. So uh, the Parthenon's actually being built almost, almost exactly the same time period from 445 to 433, kind of interesting. Um, while, while they're building, Jerusalem's building their wall or right after it, Athens is building the Parthenon. Um, and one of the reasons that Athens probably was able to take on this project is they had a 30-year treaty with Sparta, with whom they had been fighting. Um, and so they have this kind of uh, ceasefire. It's, it's almost not even a treaty as much as it is just sort of a, we're not going to fight each other for a little bit. <laughs> and so they both agree to kind of pause um, for about 30 years. Um, and... Um, and then, but then at about 434, so towards the end of this period, um, there's the what's called the Peloponnesian War. And this is where Sparta does, in fact, uh, take over Athens. They, they defeat Athens. Um, I was going to say destroy Athens, but they don't. They don't actually destroy much, but they do defeat Athens. Um, and then um, just to give you context, about 10 years after that, so around 428, so really about five years, I guess, after that, around 428 is when Plato appears on the scene. So if you want to put all this in the context of the Greek philosophers, we're, we're right on their heels. And in fact, that means right now, what we call the, the pre-Platonic philosophers, um, uh, Democritus and Demosthenes and some of those guys have already been around, um, what we call the Cretan philosophers, because they're actually on the island of Crete rather than in Athens. So philosophy is starting to become a big thing in Greece. Plato is about to appear in 428. And that same year, for those of you who are literary-minded, Aristophanes, uh, humorist and playwright of Greece, one of the earliest playwrights, he also appears around this time. So that just kind of gives you the cultural context, what's happening in the world um, around the time frame that we're, we're having things happen in Jerusalem here. And I don't know about you, but hearing names like Plato and Aristophanes, they start to make it feel closer. I realize that's still 2,500 years ago, um, but it's starting to feel like, like names we recognize um, outside of scripture and touchstones even for Western culture. You know, our own literary history and philosophy is drawn very much from Plato and Aristophanes and people like that. So that's just a little bit of letting you know where we are in the time period. So back to Nehemiah. Chapter seven, after the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, <coughs> the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem, my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. 
So a couple of interesting points about this. One is that Nehemiah is giving up power. You know, throughout the history of the world, there aren't very many people who leave their power at the height of their success. There's no question that Nehemiah is extraordinarily popular right now. He's just finished building the wall. Everybody loves him. They, you know, he calls them to do things and they do them. He's a, a leader they really admire. Um, in fact, I'm sure that if he really wanted to, the king of Persia would have said, you can continue to be the governor of Jerusalem. You're doing a great job. But Nehemiah made a commitment to go back. And you know, I, I think of people like George Washington, a similar kind of guy who could have been king if he wanted to. And he said, I don't want to be king and stepped out of power. And there aren't a lot of people to do that. It's a, it's a real, uh, there's, a, there's a certain sign of integrity and character in the ability to do that. And so Nehemiah is one of those people that here he is, He's actually getting ready to go back to Persia to serve the king in a, in a, you know, as a, as a food taster, you know, as a wine bearer. And, um, and that's kind of given the power he's just had, that's a step down. Um, but he's, he's, he's done what he came to do. And so that's one. The other thing is who he appoints. So he appoints his brother. Um, and I suppose you could be concerned about some nepotism there. And fair enough. I will point out a couple of things. One is this is the brother that came to him at the very beginning and said, hey, the walls are in disrepair and it's really sad. So he started this whole thing. Um, and so Nehemiah knows he cares. And so he appoints him uh, to be over. But the third thing that's interesting about that is that in case Nehemiah is biased and his brother is not a great leader and shouldn't be in charge, Nehemiah actually pairs him with another leader who already has authority already a recognized authority, but more importantly, someone of integrity and a fear of God, which would allow him to speak truth to Hanani. In other words, if, if Nehemiah at least is correct about his assessment, Hananiah is not going to be intimidated by the fact that Nehemiah's brother is his co-leader. Um, so he, he appoints these two people. He appoints people who fear God. He appoints people who will continue doing the work. He appoints people who care about Jerusalem, um, and he gets ready to head back. And before he does, he gives them these instructions. He says, I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts, and some near their own houses. So here's where Nehemiah is. He's like, look, I'm leaving. But that doesn't mean you, can't, you don't have to still be vigilant. There are actual enemies out there. We know that more now than ever. And the walls themselves aren't enough. And remember that Nehemiah's concern wasn't just rebuilding walls. It was rebuilding the community. So he's built the community. They now care for each other. They care about protecting the community. When he originally came, he was distraught because it seemed like nobody cared. It seemed like Jerusalem didn't care. They weren't building the walls and they, it was to their shame. They just didn't care about anything. And now they care. And so as he leaves, he says, stay vigilant, stay focused, continue to have each other's back, continue to look out for each other. And specifically practical things like, hey, no reason to leave the gates open. Um, in the middle of the night, you know, let's, let's use gates the way that they're supposed to be used. Um, and then it goes on. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. This is interesting too. They've been here quite a while now. Um, you know, they needed Ezra to push them to build the temple. They needed Nehemiah to push them to build the walls. Now it turns out a lot of their houses are, are still in disrepair. I don't know if this means they're living in tents. I don't know if this means that their houses are built, but they're just not in great shape. I don't, I don't know what it means. Or I don't know if it means there's so few people that only a few houses are rebuilt because they don't need as many. But we are told the population is small, that they built this great wall. They have this great city, but there aren't very many people in it. 
one of the estimates is that only 2% of the exiles returned to Jerusalem um, over the next 50, 70, 100 years from the time they start coming back. That's a pretty small percentage. Um, and so, uh, and that, and so the, it, it points that out. The author here, whether it's Nehemiah or whoever it is, points that out that he says the city was large and spacious, but there, well, it is Nehemiah, but there were few people in it and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. And this is what I found written there. So what happens is Nehemiah is taking stock. Before he leaves, he looks around and he says, you know, it's good, but I didn't just come here to build a wall around an empty city. I came here to rebuild Israel. I came here to rebuild the nation, to rebuild the community, to remind people who we are as people of God. And it's kind of a shame, he says, that it's just there's so few people here. And so where he starts is he says, well, let's take stock of who is here. Let's find out who are those pioneering spirits that have come back. Let's give them some recognition and let's, let's figure it out. And then he gives us his list. And we're going to read through the list pretty quickly. Like I say, I don't think we'll have to stop for a lot of discussion over the names. Um, but a few things that I'll mention before we even go into the list, a few words about the following list. Number one, he talks about this genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. And way back in Ezra chapter two, there is a survey that Ezra takes. And this list seems to be related to that list. All right. So there, there's some similarities. They're not identical. We'll talk about that in a second. But they seem to be similar. So maybe what he's looking at is the genealogical record that Ezra collected from his census. That's certainly possible. Um, in fact, it seems likely. Um, so, but this leads to our other, uh, other things I want you to think about as we read the list. Number two, it gives the same total as Ezra. So in other words, when it says this many people came, they have the exact same numbers, which is part of the reason it seems like it's probably the same list. Um, but what's interesting in both Ezra 2 and here is that the number of the total doesn't add up. In other words, what we're going to read is we're going to see lists of families, and we're going to be told how many in each of these families came back um, at the beginning, at the time of that when Ezra first came. And what we're going to see is those numbers, neither in Ezra nor in Nehemiah, do those numbers add up to the total. Now, that's not completely weird. We've seen that before. And it's likely that this is just due to who they're counting, that when they're counting the families, they're not counting everybody. Um, in other words, maybe it's only the men, or maybe it's the men and the male children. Um, but whatever it means, they're probably, it's okay those numbers don't add up because the total is everybody, but the individual family numbers, they aren't, they aren't counting everybody in that family. Um, the lists are identical in Ezra and Nehemiah insofar as they each have 33 family units. They each mention 33 different families. And in, I think it's like 19 of those families, the numbers are identical. But in the other, whatever that is, 14 uh, families, they're not identical. In other words, there's discrepancies. And in one of them, the discrepancy is a thousand people. In other words, in Ezra, it says that this family had like 30 people. And in Nehemiah, it says this family had a thousand and thirty people. I mean, it's kind of like that big a difference. Um, and so, you know, what, what does that mean? Why are these numbers not the same if they're the same lists? And uh, first of all, let me just say, I, I believe in the inerrancy of scripture, but that doesn't mean that I don't believe that scribes could make errors, um, it, 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 not in the original language, but after the case. And is it possible that in something that's really not significant to the doctrine, like the numbers of people in the families, that there could be an error in Nehemiah or Ezra? I think it's possible. 
However, I also think there are other explanations that are equally plausible. One of them is that Nehemiah himself says he's, he's simply writing down in here, he's writing down what he picked up from a genealogical record. And it's possible that when Ezra took the census, that it, when it was written down in a genealogical record, not in scripture, but just in the record that it was flawed. And so Nehemiah is working from a flawed source. Now, why did he not just work from Ezra's source, especially since Ezra is still alive? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, so I don't know exactly why these numbers don't line up. I'm just letting you know they don't, and it doesn't bother me a great deal. Um, and I think the main point of these numbers, the main point of this list is, again, to remind us that what Nehemiah is about is rebuilding Israel and the families and where they lived and the land that God had promised them. This is all relevant information. To understand that God has brought a remnant back from all over the world, from all the tribes, this is relevant information. This shows the faithfulness of God. This helps the Israelites remember this is who we are. And when you talk about building or rebuilding a nation or community, even think about our own history. You know, how valuable is it to look back at Jamestown or look at the, the we were just talking about the trip across the ocean, you know, look at the, the Mayflower or look at the, the you know, the, the Santa Maria and the other two whose names I always forget, Nina and the Pinta, something, I don't know. It's been a long time since I homeschooled my kids. Um, you know, look at those three ships and, and the people that are on there and, and then look at the people who were in the, the, you know, the, 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 the uh, Continental Congress. And, and you look at all these things and it's, it's important to us to see the lineage. And for some of us, not me, but some of us, you look back and you say, yes, I was related to this. My, my, my wife is a Woodbury and she, can, she knows you know, Woodberries who were in uh, not Jamestown, but other areas of Virginia. And so that's important. When you talk about building a nation, seeing the connection, seeing the lineage, knowing that there's a, a continuity is relevant. And in the case of Israel, it's even more important. It's just part of recognizing we are the people of God, we're the people of the covenant, and here's who we are. So I think that's why the list is here. It's part of Nehemiah's, again, taking stock, saying we, we want to get more people here before we do who's here. And so here we go. Let's read through the list and I'll do this quickly. And part of this is my commitment to read every word of scripture together over the course of however many years we're together. I want you when you're done to have full confidence. We went through the entire scripture and not feel like, well, there was that one chapter we skipped because it was all names. So I'm, here we go. Ready? The list of the men of Israel. Notice it does say the men of Israel. So again, I, that's why I think maybe the women are left out. Maybe some of the children are left out. Um, that kind of thing. The list of the men of Israel, the descendants of Parash, 2,172, of Shephatiah, 372, of Era, 652, of Pahath Moab, through the line of Yeshua and Joab, 2,818, of Elam, 1,254, of Zatu, 845, of Zakai, 760, of Bidwi, 648, of Bibai, 628, of Asgad, 2,322, of Adonikam, 667, of Bigvai, 2067, of Adin, 655, of Ater, through Hezekiah, 98, of Hashum, 328, of Bazai, 324, of Harif, 112, of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netapah, Netapah 188, of Anatoth, 128, of Beth Asmaveth, 22, of Kerith Jerem, Kephira, and Biroth, 743. Of Rama and Geba, 621. Of Mikmash, 122. Of Bethel and I, 123. Of the other Nebo, 52. Of the other Elam, 1,254. How do you like in scripture? That's your only claim to fame. You're the other Elam. Um, of Harem, 320. 
of Jericho, 345, of Lad Hadid, and oh no, oh no, 721, of Sena, 3,930. The priests, the descendants of Jedediah through the family of Yeshua, 973, of Immer, 1,052, of Pashur, 1,247, of Harim, 1,017, the Levites. And of course, the other reason for these lesson genealogies is to be a priest is a, is a genealogical thing. You have to come from a certain lineage. So it's important that they keep those records clear as well. The Levites, the descendants of Yeshua through Kadmiel, through the line of Hodaviah, 74. The musicians, the descendants of Asaph, 148. You'll remember all the way back to the Psalms and back to David. Asaph was uh, one of the people that David appointed to write the Psalms, to lead the worship, to, to be kind of the chorus leader. Um, the descendants of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the descendants of Shalom, Ater, Taman, Akub, Patiah, and Shabai, 138. <coughs> the temple servants, the descendants of Ziha, Hashupa, Tabawath, Kerusia, Padan, Labana, Hagba, Shalmai, Hanan, Gedil, Gahar, Rachaya, Rezim, Nechoda, Kazam, Uza, Pashaya, Basai, Munim, Nefisim, sorry, Nefusim, Bakbuk, Hakupa, Harhor, Zbazluth, Mahida, Harsha, Barko, Sisera, Tema, Neziah, and Harfa, the descendants of the servants of Solomon, the descendants of Sotai, Sofara, Perida, Jala, Darkan, Gidel, Shephtai, Hatil, Pokhara, Hazim, and Aman, the temple servants and the descendants of the servants of Solomon, 392. The following came up from the towns of Telmala, Telharsha, Kerub, Abdon, and Immer, but they could not show their families <coughs> were descended from Israel. The descendants of Deliah, Tobiah, and Nakoda, 642. And from among the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, Hekaz, and Barzali, a man who had married a daughter of Barzali the Giladite and was called by that name. These searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. So when they came with Ezra, and initially there were some who said, we are the lineage of the priesthood, but they couldn't prove it. And so Ezra said, you know, we're, we really need to restore, and we need to make sure we restore properly. And so if, if we can't show that you should be a Levite, you shouldn't be a Levite, or you shouldn't be a priest, rather, you still be a Levite, you shouldn't be a priest. The governor, therefore, ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there should be a priest ministering with the Urim and Thummim. Some of you may remember that Urim and Thummim is this weird thing that God set up to answer questions. So whenever there was a question, there was an Umum gem and a Thurum gem, and we're not exactly sure how it worked. At its simplest, it may have just been that one meant no and one meant yes, and the priest would reach in a bag, and whatever he pulled out was the answer. And it was the way that God chose to speak to them at times. It could be that what's saying here is until a priest is set up with Umum and Thurum, and there, then there's no way to know their lineage. But once that priest is set up, then they can simply ask, is this priest, is he qualified to be a priest? And the priest with the Umen and Thurim could decide, yes, he's qualified to be a priest. That might be what that's saying, that they're just delayed until that time happens. Hello, Jolene, welcome. Hello. We are on Nehemiah chapter seven, just finishing it up. Just that chapter, not the whole thing. You're not that late. Uh, the whole company numbered 42,360, besides their 7,337 male and female slaves, and they also had 245 male and female singers. There were 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Some of the heads of the family contributed to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold. By the way, derrick is an interesting uh, denomination uh, I'm going to give you 30 seconds, see if you can figure it out. Does anybody know why it's called the Derek or the Darek? Is it from Darius? Ding, 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 ding. You win. Yes, 
the king of Persia was Darius. So the denomination that was uh, being used during that time was the Derek. Um, so when I am king of the world, you will all be spending David's. I know that, see, that just doesn't sound right. Okay, uh, so he says, uh, the governor gave the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 bulls, and 530 garments per priest. Some of the heads of the families gave to the treasury for the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. The total given by the rest of the people, hey, uh, Mina, did you rule Persia at some point? Because there's Minas right there. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's exactly what I'm thinking. I was just trying to hide that <laughs> fact, and I was like, oh, David got onto it. We found out. There it was. Oh, man. You're, you're, you're a good sport. Thank you for putting up with my bad dad jokes. Okay. Uh, and it was, it's good. <laughs> Mina, I got to say, you look great for being like 2,000 years old. Well, I've never seen him. So I drank I from the elixir of life. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Oh, okay. At 2,200 minas of silver, the total given by the rest of the people was 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,000 minas of silver and 67 garments for the priests. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the temple servants, along with certain people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own towns. Okay, any comments on Nehemiah chapter 7 before we press on to chapter 8? So it says they settled in their own town, so they weren't settling in Jerusalem. That's a really good question. And it does bring up something that happens a little bit later, which, which is where Nehemiah basically conscripts people to come live in Jerusalem. And I think that might be what it's referring to, that, that that's part of the problem, that he's like trying to take stock of where'd everybody go, and he realizes, oh yeah, they settled in towns around Jerusalem, and they didn't stay in Jerusalem. And we need some people in Jerusalem. I think you're right. I think that's, I think you've actually identified the point of that sentence. Good job. I wonder if maybe their houses weren't destroyed. Well, the you houses know, in Jerusalem had been destroyed. Maybe the villages hadn't been. I think that's a good possibility. That makes sense to me too, Sue. Yes, Meredith. Well, these were the people that first came back, right? Correct. Because they had that thing where they, um, went and worked on their houses and they were neglecting the temple good point yep yeah so, so that's true too good point very cool any other thoughts on nehemiah 7. all right so here we go nehemiah 8. so here we are so ezra has done his part in rebuilding the religious identity of israel nehemiah has done his part in rebuilding the civil identity of israel and now God is going to come in and lead the whole nation into revival and repentance. It's like, it's, it's kind of like Ezra and Nehemiah have kind of set the stage and, and kind of prepared the way, in a sense, uh, to, to use a scriptural term, kind of prepared the way for the Lord, and now he comes. And, and now the glory of the gods returning, and there's this, this kind of major revival. Now, I've already mentioned, and I'll just mention it again briefly to remind you, the chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah is impossible to sort out. And some of that is because the Hebrews jump around a little bit. And so some passages here, it's hard to tell when this is. Is it now? After the walls have been built? Is it before? There's, there's Nehemiah and Ezra. They're contemporaries, but they don't interact a lot. But they are about to hear a little bit. It's, it's just a little. And, you know, Ezra already had a revival. Is this another revival or is this the same revival? It's, it's really hard to sort out. In fact, I think it's impossible. I think we just don't have enough data. It's like we have some of the puzzle pieces, but we can't quite fit them together right. And that's okay. I'm just acknowledging if you have questions about that as we read, welcome to the entire 
uh, scholarship of Ezra and Nehemiah. You simply have joined them in their questions. All right. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. I think that phrase, men and women and all who were able to understand, I think able to understand means children old enough to understand. So men and women and then children old enough. Um, and obviously, toddlers aren't expected to understand this reading of the law. Um, uh, uh, let's see. Made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon, about six hours, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and the women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So this is referring probably to the Pentateuch. So the, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's reading through the entire thing. Some of you who have really good memories and have been around for a while in this class may remember that God commanded them to do this every so often. He told the Israelites, I want you to sit down and read the, the, the books of the law uh, I, I, at least once every seven years, may have been more frequently than that. It's one of those things that the Israelites neglected almost right away. <laughs> that they, they just didn't do very often. Um, but here it is. They actually came to Ezra and asked him to do it. This kind of shows the revival that's coming from the people. They're like, we want to hear the book of the law. Read it to us. Ezra is more than happy to do it. They all are in attention, and that's all he does. He just reads straight through the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. I think part of what we're seeing is that this is a prepared event, right? They're like, we want to do this. And he wasn't like, okay, sure, sit down. It was like, okay, let's make, it, let's make a thing of it. So they build a platform, they put them up on the top so everybody can hear them. They plan the day, they bring everybody out. It's a big church event, so to speak. Um, all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for him on this occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padahiah, Mishael, Malchajah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Hash, Hashbadana, I like that one. I'm going to name my next kid, Hashbadana. Good thing I'm not having any more. Um, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akub, Shabiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Pelaliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. So they didn't even just read it. They, speaking of commentary, Sue, they explained it. They went through and they instructed people in it and said, this is what it looks like. This is what it should look like. This is what we're supposed to do. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites were instructing the people, said to them all, this is the day, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So here we have, you know, this grand moment. Nehemiah is there. Ezra is there. The big hitters are there. All the people have come. Ezra reads through the law. They explain it as they go. And the response is genuine and sincere, I think, and it's repentance and it's remorse. And they're weeping and they're mourning. And yet the priests, and we're going to see this happen a couple of times over this, over this whole sequence of events here. The, the um, Nehemiah and the Levites and Ezra, they're all like, you know what? We understand it's good that you're mourning, but stop. 
because because this is also a day of celebration. Look, we're back. You know, we've got the walls and we've got the temples and you're here listening to the law. This is right where we should be. We need to celebrate. Don't just be uh, mournful. It's okay. You know, we're back. You know, it's it's okay. The, the remorse is good, but they're really pushing them towards celebration, really pushing them towards that. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been listening, weeping as they listen to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. The day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that have been made known to them. They're beginning to recognize who they are. This has been Ezra's hope and Nehemiah's hope from the beginning. We are the people of the book. We are the people of the covenant. We are the people of the law. And at first they're remorseful because they realize how far they've gone. But then they're like, celebrate, rejoice. This is who we are. Take Now you know who you are. You don't have to be a powerful nation. You don't have to be, you know, David's glorious kingdom to be who you are. All you need is the law. And here you are. And so they begin to rejoice and they begin to celebrate. And it's a festival. And they begin to eat and drink and and send it even. Again, they're, they're, it's for everybody. They're, they're sending to people unprepared or they can't afford it. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gather around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. So, so now we have, after that day, now we have the leaders are gathering. It's kind of like a leaders conference. The leaders are coming together to, to really dig into the law, to spend more time with it. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were living in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month. This is, this is one of those cool moments. Here they are. They have this spontaneous festival, this celebration, where they, they, they created this festival just to read the words of the law. And as they're doing it, they suddenly discover, oh, you know what? We're supposed to have a festival this month. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, we are. So let's just do it. Let's just extend it. And the festival they're supposed to have is the Feast of Tabernacles. So it turns out we've reached that Feast of Tabernacles moment. Now, who remembers? who's been here for a while and remembers what the Feast of Tabernacles is supposed to commemorate. Why were they commanded to do it? And what are they supposed to remember? Meredith. When they were wandering in the desert. Yeah, it's to remind them that they, they were nomads for a long time and they didn't have permanent structures. And so what the, what the Feast of Tabernacles was supposed to be was they were supposed to make a pilgrimage from wherever they were to Jerusalem. Everybody was supposed to come to Jerusalem or those who could afford it. And they were supposed to set up tents and and temporary shelters and it's supposed to be like a huge camp out literally they were supposed to do sacrifices but most of the sacrifices were to be eaten so it was a big barbecue right and it was all about fellowship and it was all about celebration and it was all about joy so literally it was a big camp out to remember that they used to be nomads but now they have a place well it's entirely appropriate that they celebrate this feast now number one because it's the right time of year but number two because there's no houses. <laughs> They've already been told the houses haven't all been rebuilt. And, and it's a great reminder to them, oh yeah, we should build houses. We don't have to live in tents anymore. So we'll have this festival and then we should start acting again like we're, we're, we're a people with some stability. Like we're not just waiting for the next, the next exile or the next conquest. So it says that they would live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and from olive and wild olive trees, from myrtles, palm, and shade trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs. Now, some of them obviously do have their houses, at least built enough to have roofs. 
in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, which is way back to when they first entered the promised land. So it says, from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. Every so often in scripture, we've seen this happen. Again, if you've been with me, you've seen this. Every so often, a king pulls out the law and goes, oh, look, we're supposed to celebrate this festival. And they do. And then the author of that will tell us, and this is the first time they've done it since Joshua. <laughs> it, they, they really have neglected most of the important elements which were supposed to help them remember who they were. And now here they are coming back from the exile. And here's another one. Now, it's a little vague. It says they had not celebrated it like this. So it could mean that they just hadn't celebrated it with this much gusto. But in this case, we actually don't have another record in the Old Testament of them having celebrated it. So it might mean they had just have never celebrated it since Joshua, that they just forgot about it. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. So he reads every day, presumably for that six-hour chunk that he did on that first day. Um, they celebrated the festival for seven days. And on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. So it's a great revival. It leads into this great festival that God's already called him to do. Again, talk about rebuilding community and remembering who you are. What better way to do it than to reach back to your tradition of thousand years old and grab hold of a tradition that you were supposed to be celebrating all this time and celebrate it. And, and one that brings the whole community together and brings them into Jerusalem, by the way, which again was part of Nehemiah's goal. He wants more people in Jerusalem. Brings them into Jerusalem. It's a festival. It's fellowship. It's, 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 it's one of the it's a really cool festival God institutes. It, it has laws to take care of the poor. People who can't afford it are still being fed. It's just everybody kind of gets to enjoy the, the sacrifices, the food, the barbecue, the, the, the fellowship, the, the fun. It is a great community builder, perfect moment for it. And God engineered this whole thing. He just he kind of stirred them so that they started the festival before they even knew they were supposed to. Then they discovered in the middle of it, oh yeah, we're supposed to be doing this. Great. Well, we already are, so let's press on. So that's chapter eight. Any comments from anybody on chapter eight? Comments or questions? I really like that they, um, that he was like, no, like mourning or crying, you know, like this is just a time for celebrating. Cause I mean, like for the longest time, God was like trying to get them, you know, to like mourn and they went to Babylon and then finally they're actually like mourning and repenting. And it's like, he immediately like gives them hope and like what to look for and stuff for too. Yeah, that's good. I like that a lot too. It's just a really joyous moment. It's a great, great moment. And I like, I like what you said, right. For years, he kept saying to them, you're celebrating because you think, you, you know, you're not under judgment. You, know, you should be mourning. Well, now, now they get it. And now God's like, okay, that's it. You got it. Now let's, now let's celebrate. <laughs> let's rejoice. I agree with you. It's a, it's a nice moment. Any other thoughts on chapter eight? All right. Chapter nine. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Okay. This is interesting because those are reflections of mourning. <laughs> Mourning and repentance. You could argue it's not mourning as much as repentance. It, it, there's nothing that says you have to be sad when you wear the, the sackcloth and ashes and, and fast, but that's often what's happened. Now, is this okay? Or is this still, they're still having a hard time embracing the celebration? Well, let's keep reading and see if we get a hint. 
those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. Now, this is something Ezra and Nehemiah both dealt with. And again, um, you, can, you can wrestle with the tension of, of kind of how harsh Ezra and Nehemiah seem to be about exclusion. I'll let you wrestle with that. But, but, but if nothing else, at least recognize it is an attempt to follow the law. It is an attempt to say, we are God's people. We need to worship only our God and not continue to be influenced by the gods of other nations. Um, so it says, those of Israelite descendants separated themselves for all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So half of their day, whatever that means, half of their day is spent repenting, confessing, and worshiping. Um, and reading the word. There, there's genuine repentance going on here. Whatever else is happening, I think there's, this is a genuine revival. God is moving their hearts. Their days are consumed with this. Let's keep going. It says, standing on the side of the Levites were Yeshua on the stairs on the side. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani. And they cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Padahiah, said, stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. It still feels like the Levites are like, we appreciate your genuine remorse. Let's turn it to praise. <laughs> let's, let's, let's still take the opportunity to remember the faithfulness of God and to rejoice in that fact. I don't think they were proving them for their genuine sorrow, but there is this push, again, still from the leaders to let's turn it outward. Let's not get caught up uh, too far in this. Yes, Meredith. Well, I was also kind of thinking like repentance too kind of seems almost twofold. Like one is like recognizing you're going the wrong direction, which they seem to have an abundance of right now. And the other is like actually going the right direction. And it kind of seems like that they're trying to get them to move on to like going in the right direction, which is like praising God who, who he, for who he is and following and, you know, seeking and doing all that. I agree. Yeah. I think that's well said. Anybody else have thoughts on that? Very cool. So they go on, they say, praise the Lord, your God, stand up and praise the Lord, your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all the starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. And now we're about to get into, in this prayer, something that God also does frequently, and that the leaders of Israel do frequently, is a history lesson. Is walking the Israelites through their own history as a reminder, both of their need for repentance, but also the faithfulness of God. And in this case, the emphasis is on the faithfulness of God, because as Meredith pointed out, they kind of get the need for repentance already. So here they go on, they go on. You are the Lord God, <coughs> who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and named, <coughs> excuse me, and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants, to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day, you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. 
You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You have made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands and decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked, and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the peoples of the land to deal with as they please. They captured fortified cities and fertile lands. They took possessions of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well-nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the king of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So here's what happens in this festival. People are mourning. The priests are saying, let's, let's rejoice. The people are mourning. The priests are saying, let's rejoice. The people are mourning. The priests say, you know what? Let's think this through. And they go through the history and they say, 
God made a covenant with us and God has been so gracious and compassionate whenever we cry out to him. And that's where we are now. We're crying out to him. But you know what? We're people of the covenant and we haven't kept the covenant for a long time. So let's reaffirm it. So that's what's happening here. They're actually, they have the book of the law. They're looking at that covenant and they're going to reaffirm it. They're going to write it out. They're going to make it official. And they're going to say again, we are the people of God. So what's cool about this to me is that this is Ezra and Nehemiah's two goals, which turn out to be very much the same goal, collide here and come together. Ezra wanted religious revival. That's clearly happening. Nehemiah wanted people to know who they were. He wanted to reestablish who Israel was. Well, who are they? They're the people of the covenant. Together, they are now once again who they should be. It's, they've come through. the. This is, this is the moment of real restoration. They are now once again, the walls have been built, the temple's been built, but now the covenant's been rebuilt. The covenant's been restored. They've come back together. They're saying together, yes, this is who we are. This is who we choose to be. And, and it is, again, interesting to know that even as they're doing it, they have full awareness of the history that they are stubborn and stiff-necked and keep turning away, but God continues to be faithful and God continues to be compassionate. And so they're going to fix their, 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 their signatures, so to speak, to this covenant, to the seal. And, and it's the, the leaders and the Levites and the priests who sort of do the official signing, but no doubt they're calling the entire congregation, the entire community, the entire nation to sort of sign on in, in a sense in their hearts to this agreement to say, yes, this is who we are. We are the people of God. Um, and that's why we can both mourn and celebrate because God is faithful despite our faithlessness. So that's the end of chapter nine. Um, let me go ahead and read chapter 10 because it's just telling us who actually sealed this covenant. So let's read through that really quickly and then we'll stop if you have any comments. It says those who sealed it were, and I think it starts with the civil leaders and then moves into the religious leaders, but that's what it looks like to me, but it's not that relevant. It says those who sealed it were Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malkajah, Hattush, Shabaniah, Maluk, Harim, Meramath, Obadiah, Daniel, <clears throat> Ginnathan, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mishaman, Maziah, Bilgai, and Shamamiah. These were the priests, the Levites, Yeshua, son of Azaniah, Binwi, sons of Hinnadad, Kadmiel, and their associates, Shabaniah, Hodiah, Kalita, Palaliah, Hanan, Mekah, Rehab, Hashemiah, Zachur, Shmerabiah, Shabaniah, Hodai, Banai, and Beninu, the leaders of the people, Parash, Palat, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Begvai, Adin, Atar, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Bezai, Herif, Anatoth, Nebai, Magbish, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshabal, Zadak, Yadua, Palatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halosha, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashbana, Messiah, Ahaya, Hanan, Anan, Muluk, Harim, and Bana. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. And then it goes into some of the specifics of the covenant. And I don't know if this is intended to be comprehensive, but... But they're all taken right from the law. Uh, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forgo working the land and will cancel all debts. We will assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of the shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table 
for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath at the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests and Levites and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of our God as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. Any comments on this revival in chapter 9 and 10? Cool. Chapter 11. <clears throat> Remember that final statement. We will not neglect the house of our God. In fact, let's play a little game. Based upon the Old Testament, how well do you think they're going to stick with that? Not very well. Man, I wish I could tell you it was different, but before the book of Nehemiah is over, they're already going to fail. Okay, so here we go. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. So the leaders did settle in Jerusalem. So they're, they're coming in, they're settling in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every 10 of them to live in Jerusalem. So they do a lottery. Literally, I think this is Nehemiah's idea. They do a lottery where 10% of everybody is going to come live in Jerusalem. We're going to rebuild this city and we need the population to grow. So the rest of the people cast lots, bring one out of every 10 of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So I think there's the leaders stayed, then they cast lots, and then there's others who just volunteered. who were just like, we're going to come live in Jerusalem. I think part of the point is that Jerusalem's pretty rough right now. You know, there's not houses. It's, it's, it was really destroyed. So the temple's rebuilt and the wall's rebuilt, but everything inside the wall is pretty rough. It's not a great place to live. There's more fertile ground outside. So I think it's not, it's not the choice land. And so that's why they have to kind of command those who volunteer. The leaders have to commit to it. And then they do a lottery and 10% of them come in. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now, some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on their own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. From the descendants of Judah, Athiah, son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalo, son of descend a descendant of Perez, and Messiah, son of Baruch, the son of Calhuzah, son of Haziah, son of Adiah, son of Jorib, son of Zechariah, a descendant of Shelah, the descendants of Perez who lived in Jerusalem totaled 468 men of standing. From the descendants of Benjamin, Salu, son of Meshulam, son of Joed, son of Padiah, son of Kohiah, son of Messiah, son of Ithiel, son of Josiah, and his followers, Gabai and Salai, 928 men. Joel, son of Zechrus, their chief officer, and Judah, son of Hanusah, was over the new quarter of the city. From the priests, Jediah, son of Jorib, Jachin, Sariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Marioth, son of Ahitub, the official in charge of the house of God, and their associates who carried on the work of the, for the temple, 822 men. Adiah, son of Jeroham, the son of Peliah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Peshur, son of Malchijah, and his associates, who were heads of the families, 242 men. Amishai, son of Azrael, son of Azai, the son of Melshamoth, the son of Immer, and his associates, who were men of standing, 128. 
Their chief, of, chief officer was Zabdiel, son of Hagdalom. And from the Levites, Shemaiah, son of Hasub, son of Azrachim, son of Hashabiah, son of Buni, Shabbatai, and Jehozabad, two of the heads of the Levites who had charge of the outside work of the house of God. Mataniah, son of Mika, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, the director who led in thanksgiving and prayer. Bakabukiah, second son, second among his associates, and Abda, son of Shemua, son of Gilal, son of Jedathan, the Levites in the holy city, totaled 284. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talmud, and their associates who kept watch at the gates, 172 men. The rest of the Israelites with the priests and Levites were in all the towns of Judah, each on their ancestral property. The temple servants lived on the hill of Ophel, and Ziha and Gishba were in charge of them. The chief officer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, son of Bani, the son of Hashbaiah, the son of Mattiah, Mataniah, the son of Mikah. Uzi was one of Asaph's descendants, who were the musicians responsible for the service of the house of God. The musicians were under the king's orders, which regulated their daily activity. Padahiah, son of Mahizabel, one of the descendants of Zerah, son of Judah, was the king's agent in all affairs relating to the people. As for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its surrounding settlements, in Debon and its settlements, in Jezka Bazil and its villages, in Yeshua and Molda and Bethphalit and Hazar Shul, in Beersheba and its settlements, in Siklag, in Makona and its settlements, in Enramon, in Zorath, in Jarmuth, Zenoa, Adulam and their villages, in Lachish and its field, and in Azkan its settlements. So they were living all the way from Beersheba to the Valley of Hinnom. The descendants of the Benjamites from Giba lived in Michmash, Ahijah, Bethel, and its settlements, in Anatath, Nab, and Anahiah, in Hazor, Ramah, and Katim, in Hadid, Zavam, and Nebalat, in Lod, and Ono, and in Gei Harashim. Some of the division of the Levites of Judah settled in Benjamin. These were the priests and Levites who returned with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and with Joshua. Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Moluk, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehom, Merimoth, Edo, Ginathan, Abijah, uh, Belgah, Shemaiah, Jorub, Jediah, Salu, Amakilkah, and Jedediah. These are the leaders of their priests and their associates in the days of Joshua. The Levites were Yeshua, Binri, Kadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and also Metaniah. Bakbukai and Uni, their associates, did opposite them in the services. Joshua was the father of Joachim. Joachim was the father of Eliashib. Eliashib, the father of Jehoiada. Jehoiada, the father of Jonathan. And Jonathan, the father of Judua. In the days of Joachim, these were the heads of the priestly families. Of Sariah's family, Moriah, of Jeremiah's, Hananiah, of Ezra's, Meshulam of Amariah's, Jehonan, of Moluk's, Jonathan, of Shechaniah's, Joseph, of Harim's, Adna, of Merimah's, Halkai, of Edo's, Zechariah, of, of Ginnathan's, Meshulam, of Abijah's, Zikri, of Minimins, and of Modiah's, Patal, of Bilgah's, Shemua, of Shemamiah's, Jonathan, of Jorub's, Matanai, of Hiram's, uh, Adna, of Merimah's, Halkai, of Edo's, Zechariah, of Ginnathan, Meshulam, of Abijah's, Zikri, of Benam's, and of Modiah's, Patai, of Bilgah's, Shemua, of Shemamiah's, Jehonathan, of Jairus, Matanai, of Jediah's Uzi, of Salus Kalai, of Amak's Eber, of Hilkiah's Hashabiah, of Jedediah's Nathaniel. The family heads of the Levites in the days of Eliashib, Joida, Johanan, and Jadua, as well as those of the priests, were recorded in the reign of Darius the Persian. The family heads among the descendants of Levi up to the time of Johanan and of Eliashib were recorded in the Book of the Annals, and the leaders of the Levites were Hashabiah, Sherebiah, Yeshua, son of Kadmiel, and their associates who stood opposite them to give praise and thanksgiving, one section responding to the others prescribed by David, the man of God. Mataniah, Bakobiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Taman, and Akba were gatekeepers who guarded the storm at the gates. They served in the days of Jehoiakim, son of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest, the teacher of the law. And then we actually jumped to 1 Chronicles 9, and I'll read this quickly because it's just the same thing. Um, and the reason we jumped 1 Chronicles 9 is because it is the same thing. It's the same list. So here we go. Now the first to resettle on their own property or in their own towns were some Israelites, priests, Levites, and temple servants. 
Those from Judah, from Benjamin, and from Ephraim and Manasseh who lived in Jerusalem were Utai, son of Amahud, son of Omri, son of Imri, son of Bani, son of Perez, son of Judah, of the Shelonites, Asai of the firstborn, and his sons of the Zerites, Jewel, the people from Judah numbered 690. Of the Benjamites, Salu, son of Meshulam, the son of Hodaviah, son of Hasunua, Ibaniah, son of Jerohoam, Elah, son of Uzi, son of Mikri, and Meshulam, son of Shephatiah, the son of Raul, son of, Ib of Ibnijah, the people from Benjamin, is listed in their genealogy numbered 956. And all these men were the heads of their families. Of the priests, Jediah, Jorub, Jakin, Ezariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Marioth, son of Ahatub, the official in charge of the house of God. Adahiah, son of Jerome, the son of Peshur, the son of Malkajah, and Messiah, son of Adil, the son of Jezrah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Meshilmeth, the son of Emer. The priests that were heads of the families numbered 1,760. They were able men, responsible for ministering in the house of God. Of the Levites, Shemamiah, son of Hesub, the son of Azrakim, son of Hashabiah, Amirate, Bakbakar, Heresh, Galai, and Mataniah, son of Mekah, the son of Zikri, the son of Asaph, Obadiah, son of Shemaiah, son of Galai, the son of Jodathan, and Barakina, son of Asaph, uh, the son of Elkanah, who lived in the villages of the Nidaphathites, the gatekeepers. Shalom, Akub, Talman, Ahiman, and their fellow Levites. Shalom, their chief being stationed at the king's gate on the east up to the present time. There were the gatekeepers belonging to the camp of the Levites, Shalom, son of Kord, son of Eshbah, son of Korah, and his fellow gatekeepers from his family, the Korathites, were responsible for guarding the thresholds of the tent, just as their ancestors had been responsible for guarding the entrance to the dwelling of the Lord. In earlier times, Phinehas, uh, son of Eleazar, was the official in charge of the gatekeepers, and the Lord was with him. Zechariah, son of Meshelamiah, was the gatekeeper at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Altogether, those chosen to be gatekeepers at the thresholds numbered 212, they were registered by genealogy in their villagers. The gatekeepers had been assigned to the positions of trust by David and Samuel the seer. They and their descendants were in charge of guarding the gates of the house of the Lord, the house called the tent of the meeting. The gatekeepers were on the four sides, east, west, north, and south. Their fellow Levites in the villages had to come from time to time and share their duties for seven-day periods. But the four principal gatekeepers who were Levites were entrusted with the responsibility for the rooms and treasuries in the house of God. They would spend the night stationed around the house of God because they had to guard it, and they had the charge of the key for opening it each morning. Some of them were charged of the articles used in the temple service. They counted them when they were brought in and when they were taken out. Others were assigned to take care of the furnishings and all the articles of the sanctuary, as well as the special flour and wine and olive oil, incense, and spices. But some of the priests took care of mixing the spices. A Levite named Mattatiah, the firstborn son of Shalom the Korathite, was entrusted with the responsibility for baking the offering bread. Some of the Kohathites, their fellow Levites, were in charge of preparing for every Sabbath for the bread set out on the table. All these were the heads of the Levite families, chiefs as listed in their genealogy, and they lived in Jerusalem. Good. So we're back to Nehemiah 12. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sat off from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals and harps and lyres. The musicians were also brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages in the area of Giba and Asmatheth, where the musicians had, been built, had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people of the gates and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the walls. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Ezariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his associates, Shemamiah, Azrael, Melai, Gilai, Mai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Mai. Hanani, I remember being um, uh, Nehemiah's brother. 
with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent of the wall and passed above the side of David's palace to the water gate on the east. Some of you may remember when we read the Psalms that there was something called the Psalm of Ascents. And there were a bunch of Psalms that were used, uh, and we don't know exactly why they're called the Psalm of Ascents. One of the theories is that they were the Psalms they sang at this moment as they ascended, as he says here, the steps of the city of David to the wall. Um, the second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall over the gates of Ephraim, the Jeshna gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate. At the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I together with half the officials, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Minimin, Mittai, Elioni, Zechariah, and Hananiah with their trumpets, and also Messianai, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehonan, Malchai, Elam, and Ezar. The choir sang under the direction of Jezariah, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. So just to give you the picture, because I know we got waylaid by my notes being bad and lots and lots of names. Um, so what's happened here is that Nehemiah, in, in this kind of final moment of celebration and dedication, he assigns two choirs, and Ezra essentially leads one of them, and he leads the other, and they walk along the walls uh, from opposite ends. They go all the way around until they meet right in front of the temple, and then they go into the temple. And what better way to kind of say, we rebuilt the temple, we rebuilt the walls, and now we have this choir that marches along the walls, playing their trumpets, singing, and then entering into the temple. And it's just kind of a great cap to the entire festival. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions. This is important. Remember this. He, he appoints people to be in charge of the tithes because the people are now going to follow the law and the covenant and bring tithes again. Um, at that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions. So the temple has storerooms in it where these tithes go. First fruits and tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring in the storerooms the portions required by law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed their service of God and the service of purification, as did also the musicians and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. So this is great. It's, it's, it, they've returned... The covenant is good. Once again, the priests are doing what they're supposed to do, and the people are responding well by giving their tithes and offerings, which, among other things, provides for the priests and Levites to do what they do. And so this is, this is, this is a grand moment. Let's end the book here, except we don't end the book here. And here's what happens in chapter 13. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Again, for those you've been with us through the Old Testament, all that, you're familiar with that story. Our God, however, turned that curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Elishib, the priest, had been put in the charge of the storerooms of, of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Now there's a name we haven't heard for a while. But remember how Tobiah had, in fact, through relations, through family, come in. Now, when you read the part before this where it talks about how the Ammonites and Moabites are excluded, again, there's some tension there with, boy, that's pretty harsh. 
pretty exclusive. People can't come into Israel. But I think at this point, it's intended to be a contrast. On the one hand, we have all of Israel saying, we're not going to worship foreign gods. We're going to follow the law. We're going to do what God says. And then at the same point, we have this priest who's in charge of the storerooms where all the tithe is. He's basically the bookkeeper in some ways, who is chummy with Tobiah. And he's not going to take this separation stance. And, and we're going to read about the problem. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. The question this begs is, how can he stay in that room? Where are all the contributions, right? I mean, he's staying in the room where all of the stuff is supposed to be. We're going to find out in a second. But while this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. So at this point, Nehemiah has returned to King Artaxerxes. I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, King of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. So he returns to the king, and about 12 or 15 years later, he wants to go check on how things are going. So he says, hey, King Artaxerxes, can I go back and check on Jerusalem? Um, sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. And here I learned about the evil thing Elishib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household gods out of the room. So it goes into this room, which is supposed to be full of tithes and fruits and offerings for the priests to utilize. And instead of that being there, it's Tobiah's furniture. Tobiah has set up an apartment here. And Nehemiah is like, are you, no, are you kidding me? And so he throws all the stuff out. I gave orders to purify the rooms because this is consecrated for a really important thing, not for Tobiah. Um, and then I put back into them the equipment in the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. But then listen to this. This is why there was room. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for their service had gone back to their own fields. So there's not here a reproof for the Levites. I think the point is they couldn't do what they were supposed to do because people stopped giving the sacrifices they had promised to give. So the covenant, they were going to honor, they were going to give the tithes, they were going to give the first fruits, the priests and Levites were going to do what they were supposed to do. The people stopped giving, the Levites started starving, so they went back to their fields. The last thing they said was, we will not neglect the house of our God. And this is what has happened since Nehemiah has been gone. So I rebuked the officials and I asked them, why is the house of God neglected? He calls back that very idea. And then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. And all Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. And I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Pedadai in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zechor, son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing their supplies to their fellow Levites. So he, he puts things back in order. He says, you guys, come on, this is what you promised to do. And as Nehemiah does, he has influence. When he comes back and tells them that, they're like, oh, yeah, sorry, silly ass. The officials go back to doing what they're supposed to be doing. The people start bringing the tithes again. The Levites come back to work. Nehemiah, right in the middle of or, uh, writing all this, he's like, I can't, I had to come back and I had to do all this. This is so crazy. They're, they, they, they're, they had it and they lost it. And it took like 10 years is all. And Nehemiah says this, remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have done so faithfully for the house of my God and its services. I don't think he's boasting, and I don't think he's trying to cover himself, but I do think he's simply saying, uh, God, I'm not part of what they did, <laughs> and I'm doing everything I can to try to protect the house of God, and I don't approve of that, and, I, and God, please just remember what I've done. Because in one sense, I'm sure Nehemiah is very discouraged. I'm sure he's like, why does it even matter what I did? 
10 years, it all fell apart. And I think if nothing else, he at least wants to know that God remembers what he did. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading winepress on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. And I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you were doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. And when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the walls? If you do this again, I will arrest you. So he's like, you can't do this buying and selling on the Sabbath. And he shuts the gates and then people just park there. Well, they're not honoring the Sabbath by parking at the walls either. So he's like, you keep doing this. I'm just going to arrest you. You can't just be hanging out here by the gates. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. People like to quote this when they talk about how difficult Nehemiah is. And I grant you, this is not a, this, this, is, this is a weird moment for Nehemiah. He beats them and pulls out their hair. I, okay, I don't know. He's just, if nothing else, it shows the level of frustration here. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor do you take their daughters in marriage for your sons or yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Elishab, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the forced fruits. And the very last line of Nehemiah is a little bit plaintive to me. He says, remember me with favor, my God. This is a really bittersweet ending to the book of Nehemiah because Nehemiah works really hard and he does so much exactly right. And he leaves for 10 years and it's like, it didn't matter. It's like, it just, none of it happened. He, he re helped them re-identify who they were. And in 10 years, they forgot it all. They didn't remember who they were. And again, I, I, I invite you to wrestle with the tension about the exclusionary nature of the marriages and all that. But I want you to at least understand that what that's, what that's telling us is that they, they did not maintain their identity as God's people. They didn't remember so much of the law is about purity and about separation, and about devoting themselves just to God, being consecrated to him. And what we see in this last passage is whether it's economically or socially, that's all gone away. They don't care about that. Nehemiah worked so hard to rebuild it. It's all gone in 10 years. He comes back and as long as he's there, he's able to get them back in line. But this last line, even to me, expresses his own sort of frustration and sorrow at it, in which he's like, I don't know if it's going to make any difference, but at least remember me, God. Remember I tried. So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a sort of a bittersweet ending. You know, there was this revival, but now what? You know, now the temple's there, the wall's there, but is the identity there? 
Is there a new sense of who they are there? And Nehemiah, I think, isn't so sure. And the best he can do at the end is say, remember me, God, I tried. And so it's it's not the happiest ending to Nehemiah. Um, but I think there's a lot there we do learn about him. And again, the prophets even predicted that this cycle would continue even after they returned, that they would be stubborn, they would forget about God, God would rescue them, and they would be stubborn and forget about God. And the prophets had said, what is going to fix this cycle? And the answer was, God will change the hearts. God will change the people. He will make them capable of obedience where they're not right now. And that is all precursor. That is all foreshadowing to the to the gospel. That's all foreshadowing to what's about to happen in 400 years. And I say about to happen because we only have two books left in the Old Testament, Malachi and Joel. And we're going to, I don't know if we can do those in one week. I need to look at it more closely. If we need to do one week for each, we will. If we can do them in one week, we will. Um, but that's it. That's all we've got left. Just a few chapters, um, just two books, two short books, two what we call minor prophets because they're short. Well, not prophets. The books are short. Prophets might've been tall. I have no idea. Um, but we'll read those, those Malachi and Joel, and that's what we have left. Um, but it's all, it's all pushing right now towards that, towards the gospel, towards the idea that what's going to break this cycle from, from Genesis to Nehemiah now, going through chronologically as we have, this cycle has been going forever, where God is, is faithful and people are not. And how are we going to ever make any progress if people can't stay faithful? And the answer is the gospel. And that's what we're going to get to in the New Testament, but that's what we're foreshadowing. That's what we're seeing. So any comments, any thoughts, any questions, anything you want to say about Nehemiah uh, before we tie a bow on this? Uh, I think it's sad that the um, spiritual leaders are so quick to abandon their um, faithfulness. Sure. You'd think that at least the other people would go first, but it seems like they all went down together. Yeah, and that hasn't that always been the case. I, it's hard to know how much to fault. I mean, definitely the, the priest who invited Tobiah in is, is a huge yeah. problem. The Levites who went back to the fields, I'm sympathetic to because I think they had to feed, they had to eat. And when the, mm -hmm. when the tithes stopped coming in, what could they do? Maybe but I'm yeah, I agree. That's, that's always been the problem that who are the leaders once Nehemiah goes? You know, who are the leaders to keep it going? I think we can probably presume Ezra died um between because we don't hear about him so somewhere in that 10-year period he's probably gone but that's the cycle right you have a leader who keeps him on track the leader dies and then what uh it's just so so weird so what happened what happened to his brother and hananiah the the faithful that's a, one that's a good they question didn't have any impact either yeah that's a good question too and we don't know maybe they died maybe they uh tubed out you <laughs> know maybe they didn't end up being faithful that's a good mm -hmm. point i don't know yeah don't know what happened to them doesn't tell us any any other thoughts all right well let's call it a wrap um on nehemiah like i said thank you for joining us the journey is a ministry of discipleship matters which is an extension of focus church and is created by david mcgill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches if you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by david you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.